Gregory Warner here to tell you about NPR's new international podcast. It's called Rough Translation. Each week, we're going to take you to a different country to hear a story that reflects back on something that we are talking about here in the United States. Maybe get a perspective shift. Travel with us. Rough Translation is on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Paula, here's an interesting finding that just came into the Institute. Ready? Yeah. Statistics from the CDC are out, and they tell us that cows, yes, sweet, placid cows, kill five times more people each year than sharks. Wow. Yeah. Apparently they do it in the water as well, though. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, in the water you're expecting a shark. Right. And so, you know, you think, oh, get away, but you see a cow coming at you. Maybe you don't even see them because they don't have the fin. Right. Well, okay, here's something that maybe is not good about this research. You know, look at when they find a shark in the water, they, you know, they clear, they, everybody, you know, everybody out of the water, yeah. there's a shark. But when was the last time someone cleared a field? Right. <laughs> right. Or, or, Cows on the field, get yeah. out of there, get out of there. <laughs> Ma'am, we've traced the call. That moo is coming from inside the house. <laughs> Get out! <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. That, I, I, you know, I can't imagine being stomped by a cow either. They're not. Are they that? Fa- oh, I guess they're fast, right? Well, bulls are fast. Well, bulls. But are we distinguishing between? Because cows don't have horns, right? Well, this says deaths a year by bovine, so I would imagine that bulls are included in it. Well, then maybe they're including too the running of the bulls, where people deliberately put themselves in harm. You never hear the running of the sharks, except for the. <laughs> The Michael Phelps thing. Right. <laughs> Have you ever thought of doing the running? Running, the running that, of the bulls? It doesn't sound even no. remotely entertaining to me. It just sounds stupid. Yeah, I agree. Let's piss off a bunch of animals, put them in a small area, and then run in front of them. And run away from them. Yeah. Run yeah. away from them. And animals instinctively run towards what, you know, like I, I have 14 cats and two German Shepherd mixed dogs. And the mistake that the cats make, and I've talked to them about this over and over again, <laughs> is don't run and they won't chase you, right. you know? Dogs want something to chase. They do. They love it when a cat runs. Yeah. It, it, nothing delights them more than a, than a cat running. Bulls uh, love it when a human runs, apparently. Yeah, bu- bulls put it on the counter. They, yeah. it's, for a lot of bulls, it's on their bucket list. <laughs> All right. You know, the, the running of the people, Visit they call Spain. it. Visit <laughs> From NPR, it's live from the Poundstone Institute, where dissertation meets discombobulation. This week, our quest for knowledge continues with a study that shows your cat probably wants to kill you. This will come as no surprise to anyone who has A, tried to give their cat a pill, or B, tried to fit their cat into a Princess Leia costume for Halloween. Ah, and a chip inside your body. And we're not talking about the cool ranch Dorito you just ate. Plus, Tig Notaro. Her stand-up set about getting cancer is considered one of the great comedy performances of all time. And she's dropping by to take the PPP, the Poundstone Personality Survey. I'm Chief of Research Adam Felber, and now, here's your host, the director of the Poundstone Institute, Paula Poundstone! Thank you. Welcome, everybody. 
Welcome to the Poundstone Institute, where the studies we look at convince us that we really should have studied more. Adam, down what path of knowledge are you leading us first today? Well, it's time for us to find out all about why your cat wants to kill you. Paula, let me ask you straight up. Are you ever afraid of your cats? No, I'm not afraid of my cats. Well, maybe you should be. David Powell is the director of research for the St. Louis Zoo. He's done some personality profiling of felines of all sizes, and he found out that our cute little house cats have some decidedly unpleasant personality traits in common with the big killer cats. David Powell, welcome to the Poundstone Institute. Thank you, thank you. So David, what caught our attention was a headline about your research that said, if your cat was bigger, it would eat you. Now obviously that's a bit of a leap, but what's that leap based on? Well, yeah, it's a big leap. Uh, what it's based on is when we studied kind of what we call the factors of personality, which are the things that you measure uh, an individual's personality on, how extroverted they are, how agreeable they are. The same kinds of factors that we found in domestic cats, we found um, a factor we call dominance, one called impulsiveness, and one called neuroticism. We found those three factors in a number of the other uh, wildcat species like snow leopards and lions. Uh, and because we had this factor called neuroticism, I think uh, it got into somebody's head that these cats are neurotic and if they only could, they would murder you. How do you know, I mean, I have 14 cats, you know, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and I feel good so far. I've not been eaten nor attacked to the best of my, unless, unless it's just been done very badly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they have, a, 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 I think, a limited emotional range. When you say, when you're talking about neuroticism, I mean, uh, if you were a person, well, you know, maybe you'd burst into tears or you'd fly off the handle. But cats mm -hmm. don't have that way. You know, I've never seen a cat weep openly. <laughs> No, they tend to be pretty stoic, don't they? Yeah, so how would you measure this n n neuroses, I guess, in a regular cat? So you might see uh, different cats behave differently. For example, when you add a 15th cat to the household or something like that, or you change, you, you, you bring, <laughs> you bring yeah. another well, dog there. <laughs> let me tell you something. Uh, uh, who's more neurotic when you add a 15th cat? <laughs> That would be my neuroses, yeah. David, not the cat's neuroses. They're not, you know, they're not happy about my choice at all. Every time a new cat comes home, they're just like, oh, my God, she did it again. Now, we know that, that, that traits are selected for a reason, right, uh, evolutionarily mm -hmm. speaking. So what yep. is the evolutionary advantage for a lion being neurotic? So it doesn't mean that all of the lions or all of the domestic cats have the same level of being neurotic, but... Um, if we think about it in terms of being emotionally stable versus volatile, there may be times in the wild where uh, it might be advantageous to flare up every now and then if you're really defending a territory or if you're fighting for a mate or if you are hiding from danger. And what about the impulsiveness? Uh, what, how does impulsiveness uh, manifest itself in lions? Do they buy unnecessary magazines at checkout? 
<laughs> yeah, they have a huge Amazon account. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's kind of what we get at when we're talking about impulsiveness. It's behaving kind of erratically or eccentrically um, versus being more uh, measured or weighing your decisions before you, you make them. Can you give us an example of a time you've seen a lion be impulsive? You know, sometimes you'll see like a young lion that's still in a that's in a pride that still doesn't fully understand kind of the adult social rules, and you'll see them perhaps like challenge or become overly playful with an adult, and sometimes an adult will have to kind of correct that behavior. Every now and then, a cute little cub will fire off an email in all caps. <laughs> exactly. And then exactly. later he'll realize, I, you know, I just didn't think it through. I, I should not have done that. I'm yeah. impulsive. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They're really prone to tweeting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so since you found that house cats share qualities with the big cats, that, then logically it follows that big cats share qualities with house cats. So let's say you took a big ball of yarn and threw it onto the savanna. Would lions play with it? <laughs> Some of them would and some of them wouldn't. These factors that we find are things that help us tell individuals from one another. So my score on neuroticism may be different from your score on neuroticism. Let me tell and you, so it is. <laughs> <laughs> I can vouch for her on that. <laughs> yeah, you, we do use tests like that when we're, we're uh, testing animals' personality. We might present them with a novel object, something they haven't seen before, and some of them will be much more likely to engage with that or investigate it or play with it or attack it even than others will. All right, so I have 14 cats. Do you think that there is a possibility that uh, uh, one night they'll just jump me? It's very possible. <laughs> they, may be, they may become impulsive. <laughs> Remember, it's all about what evolution has shaped them to do. If they see an opportunity, they might, they might have a go at it. David, I want to thank you so much. This is f fascinating research, and thanks to you, thank you. I know that when I go home and my cats are huddled in a group and they go, shh, she's here. Yeah, it's yeah you might want to go back out with the cows then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, David. David Powell is the director of research at the St. Louis Zoo. David, thank you so much for joining us on the Poundstone Institute. Thanks a lot. It was fun. Does anybody here, by the way, does anybody here have cats? Now, uh, do you think that your cats would eat you if they could? Yes, the, the lady in the hat right here, you do? Yeah. How many cats do you have? I have one cat. Just one. Yeah. And it has, what is it, what is it, does it have neuroticism? What makes you think <laughs> it might eat you? He's a little neurotic sometimes, but he's 17, so we kind of overlook it and accept it. He would gum it. us. Yes, he would gum us. Oh, he, oh, he doesn't have, he doesn't have teeth anymore? Teeth, so. Oh, yeah. Well, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. It's going to be a fairly laconic attack at 17. <laughs> I'm he's going to have to dissolve you. Yeah. Or mash you up in applesauce. Right. <laughs> Here at the Institute, we don't just talk about other people's studies, we also conduct our own, which is why our producer, Ken, hit several of you with trank darts as you walked in. <laughs> Don't worry, the effect wears off in four to six hours. Also, we're conducting a survey. The question we're asking our audience today is, have you ever re-gifted something? And if so, what was it? What about you, Paula? You ever re-gift something? 
Well, you know, I work for NPR, so I would have drowned in tote bags <laughs> if I didn't give them away on a pretty regular basis. Right. But you know what? Years ago, I talked to a guy who was in charge of the apple Pop-Tarts for Kellogg's. Right, because you're a Pop-Tart comic. I I'm considered a connoisseur of the Pop-Tart. And uh, so this guy actually sought my advice. He was in charge of the apple Pop-Tart. Um, when I was a kid, they had a thing called the Dutch apple. It was just a disgusting-looking green, yucky right. stuff inside. Very so bad. this guy was trying to develop the new apple Pop-Tart. He, he was trying to have the, the wildly successful new apple Pop-Tart. So when I talked to him about it, and, and, and so when the new Pop-Tarts came out, he sent me a case of them to thank me for my help. And I bit into one, and it was so wretched uh, that I took it to the whole case to some homeless guys over near the grocery store. And uh, I gave them the whole case. And they glower at me every time I drive by. <laughs> so, yes, I regifted uh, re re Pop-Tarts. Oh, and hey, I just got a note that a funder has dropped us. There, uh, there goes Kellogg's. Anyway, we'll have the results of our re-gifting survey for you a little later in the show, and comedian Tig Notaro stops by to take our personality test and find out what kind of kitchenware she most resembles. Well, we need to raise some money. The Poundstone Institute synchronized swimming team has been practicing in an empty pool, and we would just love to get them some water. Who's sponsoring us this week, Paula? We'd like to thank Discover Card, who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Discover believes there are some things that you just need to know. They can't tell you where your cat threw up in the middle of the night, and you need to know that. But still, this is nice. It's just another way Discover looks out for you, not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover Card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. That's discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. We also want to thank Southern New Hampshire University, whose mission it is to make higher education accessible and affordable online for everyone. If you're considering college, whether for the first time or going back to complete your degree, you want to make financially savvy decisions and avoid financial aid mistakes. You can learn more about Southern New Hampshire University and the top three financial aid mistakes to avoid by texting REMOTE to 554433. Message and data rates may apply. I can't imagine needing more education after listening to live from the Poundstone Institute, but perhaps you're an overachiever. In which case, learn more about Southern New Hampshire University by texting REMOTE to 554433. Okay, Adam, I spent a couple of hours before the show forgetting things, so there'd be plenty of room in my brain for whatever you want to learn me about next. I'm going to learn you about implantable chips. And no, it's not a subcutaneous Tostito. It's an actual computer chip. Our next guest, Tony Dana, and a bunch of his co-workers are getting microchips with RFID transponders implanted in their hands. Tony, welcome to the Poundstone Institute. Hey, thank you for hey, having Tony. me. Hey, how you doing? Good. Okay, so Tony, I understand you were at a conference in Sweden, and you met a guy who had one of these chips implanted in his hand, and you said to yourself, I got to have one of these. Tell us what the chip does and why you want it. Yeah, so our company, we actually produce 
the technology and software for breakroom markets within a, a company breakroom. So we were pitching at a company called Epicenter in Stockholm. And as I got talking with the employees there, they started to show off. They had RFID chip implants in their hand right between the uh, thumb and their forefinger. You got to be within six inches of a reader, but it will unlock doors. Um, it could log into your computers. And then in our case, we wanted to be able to log into our self-checkout break room markets. Okay, so, so you and a bunch of people at your company are going to have these chips implanted in your hand so that you can buy Snickers bars without taking out your wallet. <laughs> in, in one way, it, it opens up the door for us to do a lot more things with it. But um, the same things that you do with the tap to pay on your, your iPhone. Yeah, like Apple Pay or Android Pay. Exactly. You'll have the same abilities with that uh, RFID chip that's uh, implanted in, in your hand there. Now that to me sounds super cool. So you basically, you won't need to have your phone, you won't need to have your car keys, you just need to have your hand with you at all times, right? <laughs> yeah. Do you think, Tony, it sounds, it, isn't it dangerous like to put something inside you other than, you know, a titanium knee? If you need change, just ask me. <laughs> when I was in elementary school, Lunches at school cost 30 cents. And my mother bought me at the church fair something that one of the church uh, women had made, which was a little bracelet. It was like, it looked like a watch, except for instead of a watch face, it had a little felt girl's head, like a girl face. And, and her face was like a little pocket. And my mother would put the 30 cents for lunch in there. And it was like a little decorative bracelet and it had my money in it. And you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Tony, now, as I understand it, you're not the only one at your company getting one of these chips. A bunch of you are doing it, right? Yeah, so it's it's completely optional, and we got about 50 of our 85 employees within the building that uh, are opting in and doing it. Are you worried about um, having everything you do be traceable now? Like, could somebody else at your company look and be like, hey, Tony bought 35 Three Musketeers bars on Tuesday. What's up with that guy? Um, well, our kiosk has the ability to do that already, but I don't think anyone spends time looking into that. Oh, my God. You're making this so complicated, Tony. <laughs> you just, there's somebody at the store. You say hi. They say hi. They say, what can I help you with? You put the candy bar on the counter. You give them a dollar. They give you change. Tony, is any of this ringing a bell? <laughs> 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 All right, Tony, Tony, let's look to the future. What else might you be able to do with this chip? Can you use it outside of work, or can it become Apple Pay? Can it become your car keys? Yeah, so this is going to be kind of our driver to get it to different areas. And we've, we've had uh, a lot of unique calls from companies that are very excited about this technology, and um, it's really opened up our horizons of where we think we can take this and really what benefit it can be to society in the long term. Tony, this, is, this has been absolutely fascinating. You were the first half man, half machine I've ever talked to, as far as I know. <laughs> and if I see you on the street, I hope you'll wave at me and accidentally buy me a Diet Coke. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much for talking with us. Absolutely. Tony Dana is Vice President of International Development at Three Square Market. Tony Dana, thank you so much for joining us at the Poundstone Institute. Thank you, guys. Still to come, 
the results of our re-gifting survey. But before we get to that, we need to add to our personality database. Every week we invite interesting people to take the PPP, the Poundstone Personality Survey. This week's subject is comedian Tigna Taro. Her unintended stand-up routine about the worst year of her life has become a legendary recording and the basis for an Amazon series called One Mississippi. Tigna Taro, welcome to the Poundstone Institute. Thanks now, for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming. You and I worked together at, at, at the Tree People, right, years ago. We now, did. That was before you did this very famous set, uh, this very amazing famous set dealing with your uh, cancer uh, diagnosis that was so brilliant and must uh, have been so healing for so many people. Yeah, I've gotten really great feedback from people. It took me a while to agree to put out the album because it was a little vulnerable and it kind of felt like an open mic to me because I hadn't ever worked out that material about my cancer diagnosis. So wait, you just went out and talked and that was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You know what? It was the most amazing thing. It was oh, really, really... so nice. It, no, you. it was brilliant. It was funny and, and, and deep. I did... You know, one thing you kept saying and it was you didn't feel that you could do uh, funny little jokes anymore like the bee joke. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the bee on the 405 joke. Yeah. Now, for those who haven't heard it, the, the bee joke is about being stuck in LA traffic, right? Yeah. I was at a complete standstill and my window was down... And then a bee just slowly flew past my car. <laughs> and I was just, I was, yeah, I was shocked that uh, the bee was um, making its way past me and that it even took the 405 in the begin with, <laughs> in the, to begin with. It's a silly joke, isn't it? No, I, I loved the bee joke and I thought it was interesting that you said as you were talking so I can't I can't just do the bee jokes anymore and then when you went to leave he said what, what can I do for you and someone said tell us the bee joke yeah and it was such a perfect like that that was just that's just what happened that's just what happened I I feel so lucky that audience that night was just the perfect gathering of people as far as I'm concerned because even that guy that jumped up and was like whatever he yelled in the middle of the set to tell me to keep going and it just I almost cried like three different times while I was doing that show. Keep in mind, I wasn't doing that set thinking, oh, this is really good what I'm doing. I just thought that those little moments that the audience gave me really kind of helped me through. No, 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 I'm, now, you, but now you're so associated with this. Do yeah. You, do you, does, uh, is, like, what if another comic gets cancer? Are you going to feel jealous of that person? <laughs> Are you going to feel like, no, <laughs> that's my stuff? I know. Uh, well, people always ask. They're like, oh, w when they're just starting out in comedy, they ask for advice, and I sometimes suggest cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. Yeah. Whatever it takes. No, the truth is you were already, uh, you know, you could have gotten up there and done what you did with that particular one show that we're referring to. The truth is you were already a brilliant comic. Oh, well, you're kind. But I, I struggle with that of if, you know, that I'm known for that. But then I also remind myself that I was doing what I always do, which is stand up. Right. You were doing that cool thing that nature gives us. Yeah. Which is comedy as this great coping mechanism. But the truth is, you can't just be a person who wakes up in the morning, uh, uh, gets diagnosed with something tragic, and, and, and then now I'm a stand up comic. Doesn't work in that order. <laughs> Here's the silver lining. Well, it is great to chat with you, Tig, but we have some important research to get to here. Oh. This is how the Poundstone Personality Survey works. We're going to ask you three questions, then we feed the answers into our vast database, and we're able to tell you something about yourself. Great. 
That's what I'm here to find out. Yeah. And we decided, since you're well known as a deadpan comic, uh, we figured we'd see what kind of pan you are. <laughs> so really, we're going to tell you what kitchen implement you are. Are you ready to go? I think so. All right. Question number one, Tignataro. Which would you choose? Really insanely comfortable pants that look terrible or really insanely uncomfortable pants that make you look better than you've ever looked before? <laughs> For what? Yeah. Uh, that's going to make some very interesting data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can uh, I will accept that answer. Uh, yeah, I think just uh, uh, to wear at any given time, Tig. I'm embarrassed to say I'd probably want to look good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know what? And here's, here's, here's why. I can never find pants that I like. And if somebody made pants that made me happy, I'd go ahead and suck it up. And uh, do I have to wear them for life? No. No, no, no. no. All right, question number two. If you had to eat any one dish, meaning a meal, not the plate, for every meal forever, what would it be? Oh, man. Um, I just became a very strict vegan um, two months ago. So oh, well, and I know what the answer is. You would just chew on a rope all day. <laughs> That's correct. Um, I would eat the... Um, Cafe Gratitude Burger. That's a vegan burger with um, avocado. Paula, please don't shake your head at me. Avocado. I sat with you at a PETA convention. What were you doing there? No, she loves animals. I should say pa uh, Paula loves animals, but yeah. but she thinks that things that aren't burgers shouldn't be burgers. Well, they called it something else. Yeah, I mean, it, if, I'm if just your beans. By God, say your beans. <laughs> all, all right, wait a minute. Take question number three. What terrifies you more, being stranded on a small desert island all by yourself or being stranded on a small desert island with 40 people who each have a podcast? Are you one of them? I, I wouldn't, I, no, I, we, we don't know any of these people, these 40 people. We don't. No. Um, I like to have the option to have company. Also, be a good way to get word out that I was stranded on the island if 40 <laughs> podcasts were, you know. Very good point. Okay, we have all the data we need, and we're going to run your responses through our personality super collider and see what kind of kitchen utensil you are. Tim. I can't wait. To How long do we have to wait? Oh, it's pretty quick. Ah, oh, well, this is interesting. I didn't even know this existed, and yet it's perfect. Tignataro, you are the egg cuber, which is a totally real thing. It's a device that makes cubed eggs, which reviewers on Amazon call, quote, completely impractical and a pretty good tool if you want cube-shaped eggs. Just like a cube-shaped egg, Tig, you're unexpected, original, and many people think you came out of a cube-shaped chicken. <laughs> it was great talking with you. I want to thank you so, so much. Tig Nataro is a Los Angeles-based comedian. Thank you. And season two of her show, One Mississippi, premieres in September. Tig, thank you so much for, for being on with us me. today. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to see you. All right. Pleasure, Tig. We've still got a little more Poundstone Institute for you today. 
But we don't want you to get lonely once our show is over. So let's hear about something else you can listen to later on. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, the results of our audience survey are in. We asked people today, have you ever re-gifted something? And if so, what was it? And 83% of people say they have re-gifted something. 83 83% of this audience has re-gifted something. That means 83% of gift givers aren't very good at it. Um, so uh, let's hear some of the responses. Uh, um, uh, so the question is, have you ever re-gifted something? And what was it? I gave my wife the ID bracelet I had given to my first wife. Oh. Wow, and it says from Dave, and I'm assuming Dave's single. Where are you, Dave? I'm back here with my wife. Dave, why did you give her the ID bracelet that you gave to your first wife? I, I, I thought it was romantic. Has your wife been able to convince you that it wasn't? Uh, many, many <laughs> times. <laughs> Uh, uh, all right, this person, uh, what, what, what was it that you re-gifted? A very ugly Christmas decoration. And my son just reminded me that I re-gifted the Keurig. What is that? That's the coffee machine. Oh, he gave me back to him. <laughs> Boy, that is. Yeah. So you, so you said, oh, thank you, honey. I love it. Hey, I got you something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, now turn around while I wrap your present. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. Uh, this person, I said, what, what, what have you regifted bath stuff? Um, hopefully not after she used it. Like, this soap seems damp. <laughs> and, and the person says they also got ugly, warm, fuzzy socks and other things that they can't mention because their friends listen to this podcast. <laughs> All right, someone uh, over the website, we asked them what was it they re-gifted. They said, I tried, but as I was re-wrapping the doohickey, I thought, f*** this, and I threw it in the trash. <laughs> and then they say, I'm sorry for the language. to avoid the prides of predatory house cats that roam Hollywood Boulevard, come join us at a taping of the Poundstone Institute. For ticket information, go to poundstoneinstitute.org. Well, that went fast. But that's all the time we have for today. The distinguished chair of the Poundstone Institute is Doug Berman. Our undistinguished chair is Ian Chillog. Our folding chair is Mike Danforth. <laughs> Our chair apparent is Ken Lizebnik. Our chair Jordan is David Green. Our Sonny and chair is Franny Kelly. Our chair Aristotle is Connie Bridgeford. Our King Louis XVI chairs are Steve Nelson and Anya Grundman. Special thanks to John Cohn and his pals at Southern California Public Radio, Erica Reddick, Bonnie Burns, and the folks at Nerd Melt. 
Our technical directors are Patrick Murray and Stephen Cologne with engineering from Tony Federico. Live from the Poundstone Institute is produced by Urgent Haircut Productions in association with KPCC and is somewhat sheepishly distributed by NPR. <laughs> you can visit us at poundstoneinstitute.org, find us on Facebook, or tweet us at Poundstone Inst. Thanks to our head of research, Adam Felber. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, live from the Poundstone Institute. This is NPR.